It's a truth universally acknowledged that purchases of recorded music have plummeted in recent years and that music festival attendance has boomed. Some say these are connected. The downturn in the sale of you know, recorded music has, I think, contributed to the upturn in the sale of tickets. But is the proliferation of festivals wholly positive? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Today, we're speaking with the people who put on three very different independently owned music festivals about doing what they do in a landscape where many festivals have been purchased by large corporations and run as for-profit enterprises. We also touch on how they got started, how their models are different than the corporate festival model, and the competition to book headliners that can take years. It's all coming up on The Future of What. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Nick Blasco of Rifflandia Festival. Nick, welcome to The Future of What. Ah, The Future of What. Thank you for having me. So today we are talking about festivals because festivals have been so crazy lately. It's been such a thing, it seems. It's been a real thing. Yeah, it's been a real thing. And so what's your role at Rifflandia? Did you start the festival? I did, yeah, along with a couple of staff members who are with us, you know, on our in our concert business, you know, I guess, geez, coming on nine years ago, we started it. Much has changed, but at the end of the day, festivals are still very similar. You book great artists and you hope great amounts of people come. No doubt. What got, what possessed you guys to start a festival nine years ago? So, I don't know, for anyone that has been to Victoria, I guess you could call it a quaint city. So you've got... <laughs> <laughs> a city that is, you know, very, you know, suited to walking between everything. And uh, really, the impetus for starting uh, Rifflandia Festival came out of attending other multi-venue festivals in this country, in Canada, in the U.S., and also abroad. And it, funny enough, it was really going to Iceland Airwaves in, in Reykjavik in 2007 that kind of sealed it for me, that I thought we could do it. We had the right venues, we had the right geography, something special, and we just thought, let's go for it. And so we did. And did you guys, I mean, I have this vision in my brain that Canada, that the government in Canada is so much nicer and more approachable <laughs> than the government in the U.S. Did you guys have help from the Canadian government to set this up? Not really. Not, not directly. I guess you could say that a lot of Canadian artists get help for various things. So whether it's recording or touring or things, there's a lot of different granting programs. And I think just by virtue of that, you know, you could say that we sort of felt the benefit of it as mm. being organizers of the festivals, but it really wasn't until sort of the later years that we started to qualify for some of the grants and such. And we don't run our festival as a completely community-based. It, it's sort of a hybrid community slash for-profit model. And so there certainly is a lot of grants that we we do qualify for, but it's not entirely grant-funded and ticket-funded, which is kind of, well, it's unique in, 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 its, in its approach. And are you guys based, do you have permanent venues that you use every year, or do you sort of switch it around? I mean, how does, how is it, where is, where does it happen? So it happens in downtown Victoria, and we have a total of 22 stages. And the biggest stages we have are 
take place in a park. It's an old soccer field. It's called the Royal Athletic Park. And so it's it's right downtown, and that's, that holds 8,000 people. And then we sort of go down from there. We have some venues that are 3,000, some that are 2,000, and then we sort of get into all sorts of smaller clubs and theaters and little nooks and crannies and alleys and you know street corners and you name it. So you guys really, you have the capacity to get bands that command different audiences, of course, obviously, you know, someone's going to play an 8,000 seat venue, someone's going to play a 200 seat club. We're like 65% local and regional. So we give a lot of opportunities to people that are from around here and from the province and also from the Pacific Northwest. And we try and sort of, you know, pair those artists up with larger artists that you know, headliners, quote unquote. So we really still bill ourselves, although although there's a lot of recognizable and popular artists in our lineups, we still bill ourselves as a festival that's about discovery. So it's about coming out, seeing some familiar stuff, but, but, but more, more so discovering new artists. Cool. And it lasts four days, right? Yeah, we're four days. And I read that it was sort of more free-floating. It doesn't always have the exact same dates. No, we, we, we try and stick pretty close to that second or third week of September. When we, you know, when we founded the, the festival, we actually did it on Labor Day weekend, the first year, and we thought that we would sort of piggyback a lot of the artists that were coming in and out of Bumbershoot and things like that. And it really just didn't work for us. And, and, and the other thing we had to consider was Victoria is a big, big student town. There's a, a university here with a student body of, I think, 15 or 20,000 you know, people. And when we had a festival in Victoria Labor Day weekend, it didn't give enough time to really target a lot of the returning students that are coming from around the country. Mm. And so we decided second week of September, but it has gone as late as the third week. And, you know, September is a great month for weather up here. Although one would think it, it, it wouldn't be, it is. So we've been lucky. <laughs> That's awesome. So in in nine years of doing the festival, you guys have really been in the thick of what I term the economic downturn of the music industry, basically. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So how have you seen that affect the festival business? You know, I think people's, the, the downturn in the sale of, you know, recorded music has, I think, contributed to the upturn in the sale of, of tickets. And so from my point of view, especially in the market that I know and understand up here in British Columbia, the demand for tickets is greater than it's ever been. You know, our, our ability to, you know, sell tickets on a year round basis to our headline shows and to our festivals is pretty amazing. What we're I think seeing now is just a saturation point in festivals because we're obviously not the only ones to think that a festival is a good idea and people there's, there's a demand obviously. So you know, the the thing that I come back to the most like that's having, I think, the biggest impact on us is just competition around the world. There never used to be as much competition happening around the globe as there is now. You used to be able to look at any given weekend and say, okay, there's five festivals happening on this weekend. Why don't we go to the next weekend or, or what have you? But there really is festivals, mid-size, small and mid-size festivals, even large festivals popping up around the world on every weekend. So there's a real shortage of headliners and also sort of a shortage of sort of mid-level artists as well. So I guess access to talent is something that I've, I've seen kind of, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because, you know, the more successful your, your, your festival gets, 
you think you would attract many more artists, but at the same token, the competition for those available days that those artists have has just gotten you know, pretty out of control. And then you add the U.S. dollar, Canadian dollar exchange rate to the picture. And it's a real mess sometimes. <laughs> wow, yeah. And how early, I mean, I'm assuming you have to start booking your festival pretty much as soon as the one festival's over. You have to start thinking about the next one. Yeah, we start sending offers kind of about eight months out usually. But the joke that I have with most, you know, of the headliners is that it takes five years to get them. So... <laughs> Like five years after the first offer we send, they confirm our festival. (laughs) It's just taken a while. (laughs) Wow. I always think that that for festival booking and people we've spoken to, it just seems like that is the craziest part. It's like it's being a logistics manager of just all these pieces because artists drop out and, you know, other suddenly, you know, they get sick and something you've been working on for, you know, eight months or a couple of years falls through. I mean, it just sounds like the craziest game of Jenga or whatever. It really is, you know, and it's funny. You really don't really know how your festival's going to look and feel until you're, you know, three quarters of the way through the booking process. When you put everything on the page and you look at it and you think, oh, geez, yeah, that looks like a fun festival now. Especially for us, we kind of have like maybe 10% success rate with a lot of the stuff we go after. So you have to if you want to get one thing confirmed, well, you have to send 10 offers. So it's kind of out of your control, really, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It is an interesting world, though, that now a lot of artists can make a pretty decent living just playing festivals. You know, I mean, if they're mid size to larger artists, you know. I think if you can be smart with how you, you know, your touring expenses and the amount of people that you have out with you and all of those things and be sort of have, have a nimble approach to festivals, you could certainly make a lot of money doing them. I make it make a, a decent, you know, you know, yearly gross for sure, especially if you have a demand globally. Well, I'm just thinking about Michael Franti because yeah. I see him on your website yeah. and, you know, he is at this point a festival regular. And it's funny because I feel like, you know, Spearhead and his other acts had their moments you know, but they were yeah. never massive, you know? And no. But now he's like really, I think he's doing really well for himself in this festival business. Yeah. And there's a lot of artists like that that just really, really are built for festivals. The, the That other side of their career, you know, be it the, you know, album sales and publishing and what have you, it's just not really, a, it's not a driver for them. You know, the live side is where it's at. And that's so interesting because when you're talking to young artists like I am in my label job, you know, we're, we're saying, you guys, you kind of have to be everything. You know, you have to write great songs so that you have a chance of, you know, having people wanting to buy your records and having some life in publishing. You have to have a great live act so that you can maybe, you know, play a lot of shows, maybe get to the point where you can play festivals. I mean, it's just, you really have to be sort of a jack of all trades these days. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of pressure for new artists to really try to strike all these points properly to sort of you know, lay the foundations of their career, hopefully. I find it so interesting just the amount of artists that have careers going that aren't necessarily even on my radar as a talent buyer nor a manager. I'm constantly surprised by artists who are selling a, you know, a decent amount of tickets somewhat quietly, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, and absolutely. I, I, and I love that because it, that's what is exciting, that, you know, we don't know everything. You know, no one ever would. And there's there's whole scenes that are happening, you know, underneath uh, of everything. And 
existing almost outside of traditional media and even distribution realms. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's something we've definitely discovered. I, you know, I, I always look at festival headliners and I'm like, who is that? Yeah. But they're headlining a festival somewhere and you're like, wow, okay, well, clearly they're doing the business. I just don't know about them. Yeah, I, I love it. Like, uh, it, to me, that's the most exciting thing of discovery is when you happen upon something that is just, you know, that, that again, is quietly doing amazing business. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any favorite stories from your nine years in putting on Rifflandia? Anything come to mind that you particularly thought was wonderful? Oh, man, there's been so many. Well, I'll say this. It was a real honor to have the last Death Cab for Cutie show with Chris Walla in the band. You know, they used to, they, they chose to have Rifflandia be their last performance in that configuration. And while the band was on stage, a meteor actually flew through the sky <laughs> and it's uh it made it on onto the internet there's an uh, amazing video of the band playing in this you know meteorite just you know streaking across the sky right over the stage and it was just fantastic oh my gosh so, yeah we've had just some really awesome performances i mean they go on and on we we've we usually try and go out of our, out of our way to kind of reunite or kind of dust off certain bands, if you will, we reunited Men Without Hats one year, which <laughs> wow. was the most crazy thing. And we put them in this tiny little theater and they did all of their hits and just blew the roof off the place. And there oh were people God. that were traveling from all over the world to come and see the group. Wow. They needed to see the tickets because this was the first proper reunion they had in, you know, 20 years or whatever. Wow. So that was super fun. I remember I'm trying to think of some of them. I mean, there's just been so many different memories. I mean, having, you know, Macklemore come and do our side stage right as Thrift Shop was starting to break in a big way and just having that massive crowd response and just could tell he was really enjoying the show. And it was, you know, before everything had really happened. So it was really really, really exciting. Not that it's not that it's not exciting now, but it was just a really, really cool and really awesome energy. Yeah. I think the times we've had Reggie Watts has been just awesome. Just so many groups to like after nine years, there's just so many bands that have played the festival. Yeah. It's just crazy. And I love the fact that we never really know which groups are going to go on to really, really find bigger audiences. You know, I mean, there's a, there's been lots of, people that have played the festival and, and, and gone on to actually become headliners, you know, which is super exciting Yeah, uh, when you look back at it. The, sort of that legacy, you know. Yeah. You know, we're always wanting to take chances on stuff, whether it's new, even take chances on stuff that's old. I remember one year when I heard that Courtney Love was going to start doing some shows again and had put a new band together. And I said to our talent, committee here, there's three of us, I said, you know, I think it would be cool to have her come back and headline one of our nights, you know, and if she could do it, I bet you it'll be great. And it was, and it was (laughs) wild. I mean, she wasn't doing anything. She had no shows. I I spoke to her manager and I said, you know, what's going on? He said, well, not much. If you want to do it, she'd love to do it. And let's, let's make it happen. So we, it came so out of left field when we announced her as a headliner and she got up there the band was in great form. She was in great form and put on just like a really, really memorable show. And I think it was just an exciting moment on our little 
sleepy island of (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Nick Blasco is the co-founder and director of the Rifflandia Festival. Nick, thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What? Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Two-Ton Boa. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Bob Babich of Summerfest. Bob, welcome to The Future of What. Well, glad to be here. What's going on? (laughs) Not much. It's a beautiful day in Portland. Are you in Milwaukee? (laughs) Not much here. It's a beautiful day in Wisconsin. Yeah, we're having a (laughs) gorgeous day the day before this little festival opens. We're pretty excited. Ready to go. Teeny little festival. Nothing much. Didn't take much time, right? <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Easy to put together. Yeah. 
we have to have weather like this. And it's got to be, I don't know, 70, 72 degrees today. Beautiful. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's nice. I went to college in Iowa, so I'm somewhat familiar with the Midwest summer. Yeah, it can be hot and muggy. Oh, mosquitoes, especially. Yes, and especially (laughs) in Iowa. They got huge mosquitoes in Iowa. Giant. They've got big wings like moths. They're terrible. (laughs) So, Bob, you've been doing this booking and talent buying for Summerfest for 39 years. Is that true? Yep. This is my 39th festival. Good Lord. Well, you must love it. (laughs) Oh, no doubt about it. I think it's the greatest festival in the world. It does... Anywhere between 785, 790,000 people to a million one. What? It runs for 11 days. It's the best bargain you can find. It's got the best acts in the world every day of the week. That is incredible. So how did you get into talent buying? Well, that's an interesting story. I was in college and I got a job at a record store. And this would have been 72, 73, maybe. And I was... I was starting a job in this record store, but they also owned the concert promoter in the market in Milwaukee called Daydream Productions. There were three gentlemen, and the guy who owned the record store was one of the guys who owned the promoting firm. Well, the person who was a runner, which is the guy who goes backstage, sets up, you know, drives drives band members around if they need a ride or go to the music store if they need something or sets up the deli trays, things like that. They needed somebody to do that because the guy who normally did it his car broke down for a concert they had one night. And I, I had been there for about three days. And they said, well, you're useless in the record store. Would you like to go do this for us? And I said, sure, I'll go do that. So I went over and it was Sha Na Na. Oh, my God. And like I said, 1973 was Sha Na Na. And back, back in those days, Sha Na Na could sell seven, 8,000 tickets to a show. For sure. And I did my running job that night and drove one of the guys around in the band. And, and the next day, the uh, owner said, well, you, you didn't seem too nervous back there. And I said, nah, you know, I'm studying theater in college and, and it's, it's kind of a cool thing. I, I like the backstage production side of it. And they said, well, why don't you try to do both? So I started working in a record store and doing that. And after a few, you know, a year or two, I'd worked my way up to being the buyer for the record chain. They had probably about seven or eight stores at that time. And was starting to moonlight at another company that did more classical music, you know, Ferrante and Teichers and things like that, ballet companies and things like that. Mm-hmm. And one day the guys who owned the guy who owned the record store said to me, you're too important to the record store. We want to take you out of the concert side of it. So I was pretty unhappy. I didn't want to leave the concert side of it by that time. So I talked to the guys who I was moonlighting for, and they said, why'd you come over here and start a rock side to us, Ooh. you know, rock department, if you will. So I went over there and started working with those guys and started, you know, helping put rock bands in their company. And then one day in, I worked in, I worked out here in 76 as a stage manager. And then in 77, everybody who ran Summerfest got up and left and went to start Chicago Fest. <gasps> So they needed somebody and they needed somebody quick and they gave me a call and my interview lasted about 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And (sighs) I've been here ever since. Wow. Oh my gosh. So now Summerfest had been going for about 10 years at that time, right? They had started in the 60s. Right. This is Summerfest 49th year, my 39th year. Oh my gosh. That is hard to imagine. So when you came on board at Summerfest, did they, were they doing 11 days or has it grown? No, no, they were doing 11 days. How, oh, how wow. it started is in that, that time period, 10 years before I got there, it's what you were, that had been uh, 67, something. They were having some, some problems in the city of, of Milwaukee. They were having some riots and some situations. And the mayor at that time had gone to uh, Germany and had gone to Oktoberfest in Munich. And he said, you know, all these people are just getting together and having a really good time. Why can't I take that back to Milwaukee and find this time period in the summer 
where I can have a party in the city of Milwaukee and I'll invite everybody in the city and it'll be incredibly inexpensive and we'll hit all different styles and we want everybody to come down and get to come together and have a party. So they did that the first year and they did it in a bunch of parks and it was mostly little ethnic dance groups and things like that. And they needed a place to, to bring it all together. And at that time on, in downtown, Milwaukee is right on Lake Michigan. And the downtown part, the Lake Michigan side of it, had an open piece of land that at one time had been a Nike missile site. <laughs> so it was empty at the time. So the city managed to get a lease on it and took that whole Summerfest concept down there with an amusement ride thing on one end. And it was all temporary the first few years, but it was actually in the city. And we gradually started to change it over where you started to see jazz shows and folk singers and country and all those kind of things. And then we started doing more and more rock music. And then there was some problems in about 72 or 73 where we had some riots at a concert for Humble Pie down here. And it got a little out of hand. So we went back to doing ethnic dance groups for a couple of years. And then we gradually got back into trying to do a popular music festival, but the concept still staying that we're going to have different genres for everybody in the city. So they could all come together. And it would be incredibly inexpensive. So that's what we're doing. We've been doing it ever since. And it's on, it's on the same spot on the lakefront. It's about a hundred acre site and everything is permanent. Now you've got a 24,000 seat amphitheater on one end of the grounds and you, and you have a 5,000 seat theater on the other end of the grounds interspersed between those. We've got venues that hold 14,000, hold 12,000, hold 2000. The list goes on and, and there's 11 stages down there. And every day you will find a national act headlining every single one of those stages. So if you looked at the first day, you go into Mark, start with the Marcus Amphitheater, you have Selena Gomez over there. Then you've got Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson on another stage, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts on another stage, Fitz and the Tantrums on another stage, Morris Day and the Time on another stage, Martin Garrix on another stage, Dustin Lynch on another stage, and Weird Al Yankovic on another stage. So <laughs> that's the concept, but you can get in, but you can get into our little festival for 20 bucks. Wow. And if you want to come in during the day on a weekday, you can get a ticket for 10 bucks. And if you want to come in for free, there's a way to get in free every single day. There's some kind of promotion that if people go to the website and look around, they can find a promotion where they can get into the Summerfest grounds for free. So we survive on sponsorship and ancillaries, food, beverage, parking, things like that. That's incredible. So it's a great party. Yeah. And, 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 that's, and that's how we roll. And the amphitheater, the you know, we've got Paul McCartney this year. We had the Rolling Stones last year. We have acts of that caliber playing the amphitheater every night. And uh, so that's a hard ticket situation. We have to pay extra to go to that show. But if you buy a ticket to Paul McCartney, you can come down to Summerfest at noon and walk in with just the ticket to McCartney, including, including the, the, the getting onto the grounds. So that's the party. And that's how we do it. Well, of course, I have like a million questions. But one of my big questions is... Listen, you've been doing this for 39 years. One of the things we know about in the music industry is that it's constantly changing. How do you stay on top of knowing which acts to book for this? Well, there's three of us really here that put it all together. Some younger than me, so it makes it a little easier. We're watching what's relevant, and, and we're, wa we're watching all genres all the time out in, in, out in the public. We're, we're looking at what's on tour, what's selling, what new product is coming out, what people are listening to. You know, we have to, you always have to keep up on all, all the changes in the, in the music culture. So if EDM starts to happen, you have to start doing EDM acts. If, you know, when hip hop happened, you have to be there with the hip hop. 
we were, I mean, we, we remember in the old days, we were just talking about this the other day where we had a stage that did nothing but Zydeco. <laughs> and then we had a stage one year that did, that did nothing but big band swing music. Oh, I remember you know, those years. That was, that was the nineties, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, and then we, we've had our disco tents, you know, and we've gone and changed with the times. So it's been kind of fun, and, but, yeah. but, but we still, you can still come down here like on, on any given day and you can see a country act, a classic rock act, a hip hop act, a, a hard rock act, maybe a jazzy kind of thing, a, maybe a singer songwriter. There's, we try to hit all our styles of music every single day if we can. So you have between five and 600 acts playing during this right. this 11-day yep. situation. So you must spend, I would imagine, the entire year getting ready for this? Yeah, bands start at noon on every stage. So we run <laughs> noon to midnight. So that gets a little chaotic, actually, just to get you know, the logistics of getting people onto the grounds and off the grounds to play. But, but we're at, you know, the first thing you do, we're working on 2017 already. Of course. We've got, we've got bands confirmed already for 2017. And you've got to get the headliners on most of those stages on the grounds close to locked in before you can start deciding who the daytime acts are going to be. Of course. You know, and a lot of the daytime stuff is local and regional, so that helps us a little bit because we know they're going to be around here and we can move them around into a schedule. So do labels contact you early or is, are you, do you more talk to booking agents, maybe managers, like... Agents and agents and managers—they all know exactly what the situation here is, and a lot of them are looking, you know, trying to get their acts, especially the new acts, on playing here. What we'll usually do is right after Summerfest this year, and we do it every year. Is the booking department? We have a meeting, and we call it the Go Fishing Meeting, and we find sixty or seventy bands that we'd really like to see play here for next year that we haven't contacted yet, and we'll just send offers to all those people. We'll just massive offer. Day. We send everything out to all the agents, so we they they know that these are the acts we want, and they can start looking at it and say see if they could use us for an anchor date, if you will, and then book things around us. Right, and it's a puzzle piece, of course, because I mean it's like a giant puzzle. You've got a finite amount of money, and then you have to pay people based on you know obviously if you're getting Paul McCartney, you're going to pay him a certain amount, but then you have like well we got to make this the rest of this money work with all these different acts. Right, and you have a finite amount of money, and you have an eleven-day window, and you don't want to have the same format on two stages during the time period. So, say you're booking a classic rock act like Styx, and you have Styx on this day, and then three weeks after it's all set up because you've got another act. Say you've got Billy Idol on a different day, and then all of a sudden Styx says, "Well, I have to play this day, and that's the same day Billy Idol is." Now you got to go to Billy Idol's people and say, "Can we move you over to this day?" You know, because you try not to have two classic acts on on the same day, because the headliners kind of all go on at the same time, so that would kind of be wouldn't be effective for us. I kind of honestly can't believe you guys do this with just three people. I, I yeah, really it's pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Are you getting tired, Bob? Are you starting to think about a time when I don't have to book bands? <laughs> yeah, but I would. We would miss it. I mean, we we talk about it all the time here. It's <laughs> it's the it's the energy when a band. You know, when you when you've been a part of it, no matter what piece of it you are, maybe either the talent buyers or the food and beverage people, or the security guys, or the grounds logistics, or everybody associated with a festival like this. It's when the lights go down and and the band walks on and fifteen thousand people start screaming. You know, you just don't get that kind of energy. Right. There's not many jobs that give you that kind of energy, and we all like going to work every day. You know, so that makes it it makes it so much more worthwhile to 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 get into it and, and get back into the swing and start booking again as soon as this one's over. 
So this is a music business show, so I got to ask you a music business question. Mm -hmm. You've been doing this a long time, so you can give us a good perspective. You know, the music business has taken a big hit in the last few years, last, you know, five to eight years, it's been pretty tough. And because of the, the way that, you know, income from record sales has diminished, do you guys have to, like, how do you do your metrics to find out like, okay, we, you know, we have to fill a 20,000 seater venue. We have to fill a 500 capacity venue. You know, when you don't have record sales to look at, what kind of metrics can you use? Well, you, you don't have record sales to look at, but you, but you do have airplay charts to look at and other people around the country and, and, and looking at how they've done. You can see, you, you get reports on the band, last time the band came through the market, the kind of business they've done, or the last time that band was, was in a market like yours, the kind of business they've done. So you can get pretty close to deciding what, what the, the, the value of that act is. So you can make that work. When you get to the bigger levels, there is a lot of, I mean, the record business has kind of died off, but the, the concert and festival business certainly hasn't because a lot of bands make their money now on the festival side. So when you look at it like Wisconsin, not unlike Iowa, you have a window of what, four months, maybe five months to go outside. So if there's a lot of outdoor festivals and that's, there's a lot of competition because we all need inventory. So I've got around Milwaukee, I've got two country festivals with Country Thunder and Country USA. I've got Lollapalooza right down the street in Chicago. And with Lollapalooza, if you're playing one of the headline slots, they block us out. So you mm. can't play Milwaukee if you're playing for Lala. So, and, and a lot of times some other acts might be playing another venue near us called Alpine Valley. So we get blocked out if they're playing Alpine Valley or a, a large group of acts every year go to Europe to do the Europe, the run of Europe festival, starting with Glastonbury, which is right around our time in the uh, end of uh, June. And they stay in Europe all the way to like August to right around Lollapalooza. Then they come back. So if they're in Europe, that's another group of bands that we've lost. So it's not always easy to find 11 days of music and, and we have to hit everybody to make it work. We start with acts that want to work and by the end, we're probably begging more than anything else. So. <laughs> got to fill the slot. Yeah. That's right. You got to, it's, it's inventory, right? You only have, you have 11 days and the, the window is 11 days and you got to fill. That's fantastic. Bob Babich is the VP of Entertainment for Summerfest. Bob, thanks so much for being on The Future of What? No problem. You should come and see this sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Come, come on out and pay a visit. You betcha. <laughs> Take care. Thanks a lot. The pain was on your face When they sat you down and told you by your side And haven't we grown tired of a heart that rolled the highs The talk of sacrifice The book told us everything, so nobody looked. Suddenly, we're caught under this dark sky, but they don't mind. No, they don't mind. And I recall you screaming. Before he 
Your Only Son by Jeff Hansen. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Zale Schoenborn of Pickathon. Zale, welcome to The Future of What. Well, thank you for having me. Yes, we're so happy to have you in studio, live, in, in person, which is <laughs> yes. always better. Oh, yeah. It's better than my robot personality. It's much drier. It's better than my robot personality, too, I promise you. <laughs> Definitely. So, Pickathon, tell us all about it. When did you start this and why? <laughs> what were you thinking? Well, yeah, I always like to credit there's an army of folks behind everything, and this is another case. Pickathon was is officially 18 years old oh, and always... Wonderful was kind of the art of the better party when it started. We, we were, I was in bands and had some other music festivals that I had been to. There were kind of parodies of music festivals in Colorado. We used to call something called Tell You What. Mm. Um, I'm a mandolin player. And it was something that we just decided, let's get friends together and have a good time. And that little thing just started kind of getting little 
additions and rooms to the house. And before long, we were kicked out of our original spot twice. And now we'll be in Pendarvis for our 11th year. Pendarvis Farm is where Pickathon is now. Right. And there we had to like grow up. We just learned, oh, you... You don't have all the things. So we had to build stages and electricity and production. And from there, we just kept the the amount of things kind of being added to it. And it's fun. We're, I would say it was my, I convinced my wife at the time that this is the one hobby I could have once a year. We're going to have kids. It's like, this is no big deal, right? This isn't going to take up any of your no, time. it's once a year. It's oh once God. a year. So do you have to tear out all the stuff that you put up or is it permanent at this point? It is a working farm. And so pretty much we leave a couple things that are in you know interesting to the farm. Let's we talk with Scott and Sherry quite a bit and everything has to have like triple use and they have horses that walk around and so they can't get hurt. But you know, Pickathon is kind of the concept where we've really honed in over the years is how do you make a beautiful thing? Mm-hmm. And and you know, it's multidimensional. The farm is a big piece of that. Scott and Sherry just have this ethos to to keep that place just, it's pretty ridiculous. If you've never been to the farm, it's 80 acres right in the middle of Happy Valley, which is just getting squished by every possible type of thick development. But they have this amazing piece of property there. Yeah, it's beautiful. I thought when I first went to Pickathon, I was like, oh, yeah, these guys figured this out in terms of how to make it look beautiful and still be a festival because I feel like, you know, a lot of festivals sort of suffer from that, like too many people, too much beer, just like it feels like you're in the middle of a parking lot because you often are in the middle of a parking lot. Yes, and that that is like a, the dilemma of all music festivals, I think, is how do you make it irrational, which is kind of the concept behind a beautiful thing. The whole optimization of a beautiful thing is the best experience, you know, the most inspiration, like in everything you think, but in every context you come up with that, it doesn't line up with business model. Those Mm. two are uh, so interesting. We've kind of figured out something that might, and that's kind of been, you know, our journey over the last five or six years is to come up with a reason of why we make Pickathon a beautiful thing, because inherently you know, all festivals are kind of going the other direction. They, Nothing we do makes sense. You should just pop up stages. You shouldn't build custom stages. You shouldn't have, you know, 20 different beers. You should just have one big beer that <laughs> pays you a lot of money because, you know, you should sell water because they're trapped there and you'll get a lot of money. You know, all these decisions that drive kind of festival economics. Mm-hmm are not fun, you know, in a lot of ways. And so that's a real challenge to have a music festival or a festival in general and do things that are really special, but actually, you know, it's not just about making money. It's about being just responsible, paying your people and, you know, everyone's professional. There's come to a point where you can't, you can no longer say, hey, let's do it for the dream of it. Right. That's right. That's true. Well, if you want to keep doing it. It's good to say, let's do it for the dream of it, and you're getting paid for it, you know, kind exactly. of. Those two actually do work together. Right. So how have you guys made that balance happen? Because that's pretty impressive. It's still early. It's still a theory. The theory is that we have been thinking of Pickathon as kind of pop culture. And so let's just create pop culture and not try to make it anything but is, you know, 
authentic and interesting as we can and then build a content business that allows us to scale out. And so we really heavily have been focusing on film and video and production of the different stages. We do six original kind of private sessions that are all built like mini film sets around the site. We do a number of other things, including interviews, which you're going to be involved in this year. Woohoo! So exciting. Um, yeah, so those are all, the idea is how, that it should be interesting. I mean, it's, it's these aren't forced moments in kind of the artists or people's lives. These aren't something we're really staging in a way that they don't they don't honestly feel like it's some of the best performances they've ever given. And that doesn't happen by accident. You have to kind of put them in this kind of magical setting where everything is just right. And it's just, you know, again, that is a beautiful thing. And that's what happens to people in those kind of settings. Mm -hmm. And then the idea behind the video and the record label, we started a record series, is that those can scale. Pop culture can can scale up in different ways. And we're really... I like to say we're like the pig iron of the video world, right? And <laughs> but we're soon gonna make rebar and like <laughs> but when we're surviving, the good news there is if you can survive in that kind of environment, you can kind of like go up the food chain and, and kind of get more into the traditional models like cable and video series. And those are some things we're exploring this year too. Cool. So one thing that's also very cool about Pickathon is that you're very family friendly. Mm-hmm. So you want to tell us a little bit about that aspect? Well, I had kids. <laughs> and you were like, well, can't do this just by myself anymore. Yeah, it was really kind of hard to have kids at the music festival when adults just kind of hang out and no one's thinking about kids, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's nothing like having being in that situation. That just led us to, like a lot of the other things that we start thinking about, well, gosh, what would it, what could we do? And, oh, Let's add Trackers Northwest. Let's add a circus. Let's add uh, music. Let's add, oh, let's add daycare. Oh, let's add classes. Let's add crafts. We probably have six or seven simultaneous things going on throughout and four venues besides the six main venues that are just for kids. It's awesome. Yeah, and it's it's kind of fun for them. It's like a kind of double down on the best security is parents. That's what I, we found is like, you can have all the security you want, but if you've got a thousand kids like under 12 running around and no one really notices them, they just kind of do their thing. It's because it's not that dense. And But those parents are like the best, you know, <laughs> if we would, uh, you could never like, they just basically tell people to chill out when people are out of hand and it works. So we don't really have any kind of security issues. I attribute, I give a lot of it to the kids and their parents. That's awesome. You have to have, well, you have to make sure that responsible parents come, right? They have to sign something when they yeah, come they in. Yeah, <laughs> they might just dump their kids off. I never thought about that. Yeah, I guess you guys haven't had that problem yet. We haven't had that problem yet, no. I mean, kids are making good money. I think my son made split like playing kind of hack ukulele. Although he's a very good fiddle player, they were just playing busking and made several hundred dollars. So, what? Yeah, they just... Just on the trails. All right. Well, everybody who's listening, bring your children. They can make some money for you over the weekend. They can make your ticket back. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. So how have you seen, as someone who's been putting on a festival, even if it's, you know, a dreamier, more wonderful model of a festival than, than many festivals, how have you seen the music business, the sort of tanking of the music business over the last several years, affect your business? Well, 
I want to be on the part of this. My brain always goes towards the solution. Like, how do we actually help? So I think the commoditization of music festivals is really starting to take hold and things are you know, just being owned by a couple big people. You know, there's only a couple large festival companies out there. And like they, everything else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They tend to kind of hollow it out and it's all about profit. And, you know, the big, the big thing is density. And we've made a lot of those choices. But I think some of the power of actually making a beautiful thing is that you become interesting in pop culture and you start to change the arc of things. So we just we've noticed that the over the years that in this northwest region if we bring in an artist they actually have a significant increase in their in their reach and their draw and their and their and their arc and their career and potentially selling records and when we when we do deals with the content we're trying to figure out ways to share that revenue as close to 50/50 as we can there's just lots of things that we only thing I can do conceptually is or us as a team is to kind of what can we do? What how can we help, you know, be be something that actually moves the needle the other way versus kind of, you know, helping it nose dive and tank. I mean, a, one fun thing that we've do that has turned out to be kind of a strength is we always thought the best music should win in terms of programming a music festival, which translates to lots of weekends and basements and music and beer, you know, a large social calendar. Mm-hmm. And we've opened the ring to this crazy group of friends and, and professionals who love to send in their favorite artists regionally in particular genres. And what you tend to find out with those kind of people who just love music, right? That would just, that's all they, they just have this deep affinity is that you find the Elvis of various music scenes and then they, they don't necessarily draw. They don't even have like the kind of pulse star numbers to even go by. And that would really scare most music festivals because it's more becoming data driven, you know, of course, yeah. we're going to do, here's my data driven. Here's a music festival pop. And we'd almost have, like, we'd score as almost a zero, like, you know, most <laughs> of the time in that world. Because, But it's it matters because those artists actually are amazing. And I think that actually those kind of faith in the music itself and the why you're doing something translates over time if you can survive. Right. Wow. That's awesome. I was going to just ask you about how you do the curation and how you pull together the artists, but you have this huge team that's sending you stuff. It's, you know, it's art of the better party. Yeah, so yeah, you can have a lot of fun curating. We we, we often say, give us your 10 favorite artists that hopefully they have a record coming out in the next year or, and if you have, you're gonna go to Matt for one of these, like just, you gotta tell us why and who they are. And then we just, we tend to try to ask a lot of people who have music tastes separate from each other, whether it's metal, you know, or bluegrass or rap or electronic. It's kind of been fun. I think over the years, we've had a mixture of people think Pickathon is is a bluegrass festival. And just because of our name, although I like to say that's we pick the music, not because we (laughs) pick the instruments. There is a third rail kind of with some fans, you know, when they, and I think this happens at any music festival. We realized early on, we were not going to be a factional music festival. We're not going to be just a rock or just a blues or 
Nobody just that. It wasn't ever interesting to any of us, even though we played this music. But people like to kind of think they have it figured out and say, oh, they would never, they would never do a a metal band, you know, or they would never do a, a rap band and we'll do it and we'll get, you'll get a mixture of flack, but then you'll get this mixture of, of people who are just totally excited because they didn't think they even liked that music. But when they see the Elvis of that music, right. <laughs> you're a fan. That's amazing. So do you guys curate the different stages based on that? Or do you mm. sort of leave that just, you know, you're putting on the best that you've got and you don't care? Juxtaposition. We call it schedule Sudoku. And it's <laughs> it's another whole set of social events you can create. And they're really fun. But the, the rules of schedule Sudoku is you cannot have similar music on any across stages. And you can't have similar music on the same stage back to back. So you, you're looking for juxtaposition. Now, if you were hardcore folk or indie rock, you could like chase it. You could just, because we, we wanted, there are those people and they just have to be in that world the whole day. So we kind of allow people to chase down that, their little thread. But it, the, the extra thing we put on Schedule Sudoku this year is like, if you passed out all day long, or took a nap or whatever you do to relax and you didn't move, would you be sad? Would you have had a good day at that at that <laughs> stage? And yeah, this year I'm pretty I'm pretty confident that you could just you could probably be there all weekend and you'd be okay. Wow. So, yeah. That sounds fantastic. Just a, you know, it's just another challenging way to kind of like curate. And it's it's a lot of little things. You know, we could never Pickathon is not is like a is like one million teeny things. Mm-hmm. You know. So do you do anything special for the artists backstage that uh, you yeah. should know about? We just kind of take care of them. Like I don't know. It feels like you're you shouldn't you take care of them like a house guest, right? They just I just I never understood the festival machine of you get a trailer, you get a food plate, you get a you know. Do you want a box of wine? Oh, you're a better artist. We'll get you a bottle of wine and. <laughs> You know, if you're really important, you have your trailer all day. If you're not, you're there for part of the day, you know, an hour, and then you're out. Right. We're just like, this is like, you know, we're building a house. You should be able to hang out all day, all weekend. You know, you want to, we actually have camping concierge for like our our artists. So it's a lot of artists. Last year, I think we had 80 artists camping. Wow. Yeah. And they love it, you know, that... It's just again, it's a bunch of little things. You sh- you should just feed them and hang, let them hang out and be part of it. We've had many artists go off tour and come to Pickathon. Ty Siegel took his whole band to Pickathon two years ago, just just off tour. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they just hung out. So just having fun. Just having fun. That's awesome. So remind us of the dates again. It's the fifth through the seventh of August. Awesome. Or the fourth through the seventh, if you count Thursday, which does count. Why does it count? It used to be the kind of early day that we had folks, it's just some folks really wanted to arrive early, but we've just grown enough to put a full slate of like 12 bands on that day. Wow. So that's going to be really fun. Fantastic. Well, Zale Schoenborn is the founder and executive producer of Pickathon. Zale, thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What? Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Two-Ton Boa, Jeff Hansen, The Every Others, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. 
For more info on the shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. by the Every Others.